Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. House Republicans are moving closer to a decision on whether or not to impeach President Biden. He's really kind of preparing those reluctant members maybe to say, "Okay, maybe you should be ready to vote for this. I'm Ryan Schmelz. The national debt heads towards thirty three trillion dollars, and it may be concerning to know which country owns a portion of that debt. But is the tide turning? It leaves us vulnerable from a national security perspective. We borrow from abroad. We're dependent on overseas borrowing to help keep interest rates low. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. High crimes and misdemeanors, that's the standard for impeachment. What behavior or actions rise to that level? Historically, whatever the House of Representatives says does. In 1868, the House voted to impeach President Andrew Johnson on 11 counts, mostly tied to violating federal law to protect high-ranking officials like a secretary of war from being removed from office. More than a century later, in 1998, President Bill Clinton was impeached by the House on two counts, perjury and obstruction of justice over lies about his affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Twice, the House of Representatives said President Donald Trump met the bar of high crimes and misdemeanors by abusing his power and obstructing Congress tied to an alleged influence campaign with Ukraine in 2019 and then in 2021 for incitement of insurrection during the Capitol riot one week earlier. Now, in 2023, the House is again weighing if President Biden has met the high crimes and misdemeanor threshold. There's no question Hunter Biden was enriching himself and his family uh, while riding on Air Force Two at the expense of the American taxpayer. But what's more concerning is what Joe Biden's role was. That's Kentucky Republican James Comer, the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, leading an investigation into whether or not the Biden family and business associates sold access to the then vice president during the Obama administration. A growing number of House Republicans say they're already sold on that case and are pressing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to launch impeachment proceedings. There's a lot of questions still. And to be able to get the answers to these questions, you would need impeachment inquiry to empower Congress, Republicans and Democrats, to be able to get the answers that the American people deserve to know. Fox News senior congressional correspondent Chad Pergram says for McCarthy, it could come down, as it so often does, to the math. And that's where Speaker McCarthy, if you look at what he had said and other Republicans back in 2019, they were critical of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi at the time, who started to do impeachment-like things without an actual resolution to codify an impeachment inquiry. 
And a formal impeachment inquiry, what that does is it gives you more power to investigate. It gives you better standing in the courts. It, it just makes things a little bit easier if you're here on Capitol Hill, even if you don't actually go to impeach somebody. And you had people like Doug Collins, the former congressman, Republican from Georgia at the time, uh, who was the top Republican on the Judiciary Committee in 2019, saying, wait a minute, you guys haven't started a formal impeachment inquiry. Well, here's Kevin McCarthy pushing impeachment. He has a four-vote advantage in the House. There are 18 Republicans who represent districts that President Biden carried and many others who are wary about starting impeachment or going anywhere near impeachment, no matter what, to say nothing of the fact that it's about the math. And now we've learned that the majority leader, Steve Scalise, will probably be out for a period of time because he has Mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. So where do these votes come to codify an impeachment inquiry? So what Kevin McCarthy is doing, there's an awful lot of jawboning around the idea that they're talking impeachment. Talking impeachment is what they're going to do. Would they ever actually, you know, codify a resolution potentially? Uh, There might be an escape hatch here for some vulnerable Republicans, moderate Republicans to say, well, I'm all for investigating. I'm not necessarily for impeaching the president, but I think that, you know, we should get to the bottom of these emails and Burisma and who was doing what with, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these different uh, shadow firms that were associated with the Biden family and so on. So that might be a way that they actually get to this. And it's hard to see Kevin McCarthy, who, if you look very carefully at his rhetoric, since early July, where he talked first about impeachment potentially for Merrick Garland, the attorney general, over the Hunter Biden matter. Then he went a little bit further with President Biden, and he's done that in August as well. It's hard to see how he's able to draw that back. He was really doing two things, Jared. Number one, he was testing the waters, but he was also seeing the pressure coming from the right and the Freedom Caucus saying, if I don't do this, I'm going to get plowed over here. So he's kind of you know, doing this tease and a moose-bouche, as you, as you were, for impeachment to try to get that out there and then simultaneously get those reluctant members maybe to get into the impeachment camp. But how does that look? I mean, so something less than impeachment is not going to fly with a lot of the Republican base. You mentioned, obviously, the Freedom Caucus, others who are really eager to, to get moving on this. I mean, you have the Oversight Committee investigating. You had the Judiciary Committee running investigations. Why would an impeachment inquiry be any different than the status quo? Well, because actually what you have done is you've demonstrated to your base and those Republicans, those Freedom Caucus members, that you're doing something serious about this. But number two, uh, people just hear the word impeachment. You know, and I asked Daryl Issa, the Republican representative from California yesterday, I said, isn't this kind of a rhetorical sleight of hand? People, Mm. you know, people don't follow this at the granular level Mm. that we do. And they hear the word impeachment inquiry and they don't know the difference. You know, they just, oh, they're doing something on impeachment. impeachment. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe and maybe actually that's the way Kevin McCarthy gets out of this if he doesn't have the votes for an actual impeachment inquiry. Yeah which is what he does is he just talks about impeachment a lot and it's floating around in the ether. And, you know, the, the you know, the guy back in Dubuque hears this. Oh, yeah. OK, that's kind of what I want. Impeachment. Yeah. So there you, mean, you go. I mean, and you mentioned those Republicans, the 18 Republicans in districts that were won by President Biden. They obviously are up for reelection, most of them uh, in the coming year. So that's where where this conversation has to be held. Right. It's trying to figure out what their comfort level is with, with moving forward. Yes, it is. Because, you know, Kevin McCarthy, he wants to test that water. Uh, I have been told that he's kind of reluctant to do this. But again, he's trying to, as I said, there's, there's really two things that he's doing. He's testing the water, 
it's a trial balloon, but also mm-hmm. kind of, well, and he's really doing three things. The second thing is that he's, he's really kind of preparing those reluctant members maybe to say, okay, maybe you should be ready to vote for this, but also protecting himself. Because if he doesn't go there, he's going to get eaten alive. You know, I mean, you have a lot of Republicans, you know, who supported him after the lengthy race for speaker back in January, supported him reluctantly. And they don't like what he did with the debt ceiling package. Uh, more Democrats than Republicans voted for that. He's probably going to have to take it on the chin in some form on yep. keeping the government open with an interim spending yep. bill at the end of September here. And so how do you how do you get out of that? You, you Well, you say, well, look, I'm taking care of you in this sense. We're doing impeachment. But here's the problem with the Freedom Caucus. As one political science professor who I interviewed this week, you know, I said, well, you don't always get everything in politics that you want. And she said to me, she said, well, the problem is the Freedom Caucus wants everything. <laughs> they will not take no for an answer. And she's right about that. Well, yeah. And listen, it's not an unusual position to be in. They waited a long time to get back in power. They have the majority um, and they want to use the tools that they think were used against them. I mean, we've talked mm-hmm. a lot a lot about that in politics, but it's still, you know, I guess as I look at the math and you remind me constantly that it's about the math, about the math, about the math. Mm -hmm. If they were to put forward some sort of formal impeachment vote and it were to fail because of reluctance among Republicans, what what would happen? You just nailed it. That's the problem. And you know that Kevin McCarthy has never been particularly adept until the past couple of months, frankly, at it's counting better, votes. To be fair, he has, he has, he has. <laughs> and that was always his weak spot. Uh, I mean, they passed a bill that dealt with, you know, he finally became speaker. OK, but, you know, by the skin of his teeth, mm-hmm. uh, they passed a bill that dealt with um, it was kind of the fake debt ceiling bill in April. But they were, ma- mm-hmm. you know, managed to do that. Uh, you know, he, he worked out a bipartisan agreement, you know, even though he he took criticism from the right on this, uh, you know, with uh, the Democrats and President Biden uh, got the right votes, actually a pretty high vote on both sides of the aisle to pass that bill and the debt ceiling back in the spring. So, yes, he has gotten better, but you have to be crystal clear. And this is where I start to see, you know, the, you know, this is where the future is always moving here. OK, Scalise, uh, a source close to Scalise tells me yesterday that they don't think he'll be out a lot, but they don't really know. They said, we just don't know yeah. what this means with the it's treatment. cancer treatment. Okay. You don't know. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And even if and his health, by the way, should be the priority for not just him, but but obviously his colleagues and in, in exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. But members take their voting pretty seriously, no matter what their health. Are. I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. them bring people in and, you know, wheelchairs and come in from yeah. the hospital. And I mean, you know, I've seen it in all forms. I mean, the only thing you're guaranteed around here to do is vote. And so, yes. So that's one thing. Um, But, you know, but right there, you know, Steve Scalise would probably vote for an impeachment inquiry. But you're down one vote right there, right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say all the other people who are out for a myriad of reasons are just having a common cold, frankly. And again, we don't know what what the thinking is for some of these members who, you know, may be concerned about about the political fallout. Let me ask this aspect of it. Mm -hmm. What if you know, is president, former President Trump continues to run through the, these legal issues that he has, right? We've got trials now, it appears, coming up. Certainly, there could be additional information that comes out, maybe superseding it, whatever it is, right? As mm-hmm. that pressure builds on him, and then he starts to maybe put pressure on McCarthy, puts pressure on Republicans, you have to impeach Biden. Does that change the calculus if he maybe starts pulling the levers a little bit? 
It, it could. And some people have pointed out that he's already doing that uh, to some degree. I mean, he's posted some some mm-hmm. things saying, you know, why aren't you already uh, I- impeaching the guy? I mean, I yeah. mean, you know, th- this is not, you know, brand new. And, you know, and President Trump, he doesn't really hide his feelings about a lot of things and, <laughs> and, and certainly not on, on something like this. I mean, he came out and was pretty vitriolic about what he thought should happen with uh, President Biden. Uh, he put up on his social media accounts. He said, here's what he said, quote, you don't need a long inquiry to prove it. It's already proven, which it's not. Either impeach the bomb or fade into oblivion. They did it to us. Exclamation. Well, there point. you go. So, I mean, <laughs> so, he's already doing that. You're right. So let me ask this question is sort of the transition to the next topic. Mm-hmm. Does anything happen on impeachment before the spending issue is settled? I mean, Congress gets back. They have very little time to prevent a government shutdown at the end of September. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. Uh, It probably depends on where the votes are or Mm -hmm. what they decide to do. Um, If I had to guess, they probably deal with impeachment first because that's easier, not in some way, because, as you know, they they have until, you know, 1159, 59 p.m. on (laughs) September 30th to fund right. the government. So why would you mess with that on September 12th? You know, I mean, that's just <laughs> well, the, way, and, way the logic is have, around this. You time. and I have been have, have spent some late nights at the Capitol. Yes. As they yeah, yeah. So about September the 28th, they'll start to work on this. <laughs> I've said that about the, the one thing that I think the press corps, at least members of the press corps in, in, in Congress has is, you know, deadlines are there for a reason. It, I remember saying in college, listen, if the professor wanted it early, they would have set that deadline earlier. <laughs> why, yeah, exactly. why would I start writing the paper now? Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about the spending issue quickly, because that is something, obviously, that's going to come to a head. President Biden has put forward this sort of supplemental request in lieu of whatever short term or or whatever spending agreement is reached. More money for Ukraine, more money uh, for FEMA, uh, some money for the border. Are any of those in jeopardy? Yes, because we don't know what this is going to look like. We don't even know that they can keep the government open. Right. So here, let me let me talk about the disaster aid part of this, because that's relevant with the hurricane and the, the wild. And, and Maui. Maui. Yeah, they're still. Yes, yeah. exactly. So FEMA has a fund called the Disaster Relief Fund or DERF mm-hmm. for short. <laughs> so Deanne Criswell, who's the administrator of mm-hmm. FEMA, indicated the past few days that they're fine with money for immediate needs. And that's what that money goes for. Immediate needs, meaning you've just had an earthquake. You've just had a wildfire. Mm-hmm. You've just had a tornado. You've just had a flood. Who needs what? Water, power, you name it. Okay, so that's FEMA. And so that money has dwindled to $12.3 billion. So they need to re-up that because we don't know what earthquake is going to hit next week mm-hmm. or what wildfire or whatever it might be. So they have already requested, and you're toward the end of the fiscal year anyway, September 30th. So that fund is already going down because for the past 11 months, they've been spending yeah. all this other money. They were going to have to replenish that fund anyway. Right. Yeah. So... If you're somebody who's for money for Ukraine and there's only so many appropriations trains that leave the congressional station a year, well, you have to put those things together. Now, there's plenty of people, especially on the Republican side of the aisle, who oppose the Ukraine money. And this Mm -hmm. is where you've had people like Rick Scott, Marco Rubio. I just interviewed Jared Moskowitz, the Democratic representative from Florida. He used to be the, you know, uh, management director uh, for emergencies in Mm -hmm. Florida before he came to Congress. He says that should be a separate individual bill. And you can do it that way. But the people who are really for Ukraine realize that, ooh, 
we're going to take it on the chin because there's only so many trains leaving the station. We haven't gotten the Ukraine money loaded onto that train. So that's the problem. And that's why you could do a supplemental bill just for Ukraine. You could do a supplemental bill just for disaster relief, uh, but they probably get glommed together, probably in some sort of interim spending bill by September 30th to avoid a shutdown and or a second interim spending bill, say in the middle of October or November or wherever we are with the spending process. And the other thing about FEMA is that we don't know the full scope of the disasters in Maui. We certainly don't know them in Florida and Georgia and South Carolina yet. That takes weeks, if not months, to figure out. So what you could see is down the road, maybe when they get to the final funding bill uh, for the coming fiscal year, they say, we need a big chunk of money for Hawaii. We need a big chunk of money for Florida. And there you go. Now, let me throw this at you. The most small-D democratic force in the universe, Jared, is Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And it used to be when they had these disaster bills, so they might have to do a bigger disaster bill later this year, like they did after the big hurricane, Superstorm Sandy, several years ago up in, up in the Northeast. When you have a bill like that, okay, you would have everybody get on board. Because if you were from the Gulf Coast and you got hurricanes and there was an earthquake in California, you would vote for that bill because you might be, your number might right. be up next. Or you're a right. farmer in the Midwest and they've got an ice storm in New Hampshire, well, you would vote for that bill. What started to happen around 2010 is that members didn't see it that way. And in fact, it was a monster lift to finally pass the bill, the big spending bill for Hurricane Sandy, because Republicans viewed that as, oh, it's a, uh, it's a big uh, th- thing off uh, for the, the, you know, th- those people in New York, you know how they are, you know, that sort of thing. Right, We're not going to right. help New York. And that's exactly what they tried to do. They finally got it passed, but it took a, a large lift. So sometimes you have people wanting to pass these big bills and they have trouble getting them through. Chad, excellent reporting. Have a, a good weekend. Congress back soon. Thank you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Whether you're talking to Republicans or Democrats in Washington, most will tell you America needs to depend on China a lot less. Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher, who chairs the new House Committee on China, is one of them. We have to identify the sectors that are critical to American national security where we need to decouple or we need to reduce our dependency substantially on China so they can't hold us hostage. The U.S. relies on a number of countries like China to hold its $32 trillion national debt. And Maya McGinnis with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget says that can be a concern. So we've opened up a number of vulnerabilities by becoming dependent on countries, particularly ones that we are not aligned with to lend us money. But how much China owns on our debt dropped below a trillion last year for the first time in a decade. The debt is basic part of sort of budgeting and economic practices. And it's not bad that we have a debt. What's bad is that we have a debt that is so large 
and growing by so much. Maya McGinnis helps us break down what this all means for the U.S. economy and even our national security. So when your debt reaches excessively high levels, and ours has, it's almost 100% of GDP, and probably more worrisome than that, it's projected to break the historical record we've ever had in this country in the next few years, and interest payments are the fastest growing part of the debt. And overall debt is growing faster than the economy. Those are all warning signals. And when you get to a point when your debt is too high, it has a number of damaging effects. One, it weakens your economy, it slows growth, it slows standard of living, wages, job prospects, all the things that matters to families across the country. Number two, it leaves us less prepared to borrow when we should borrow, which is during emergencies like the pandemic or the downturn that we had in 2008, 2009. At those points, we should be borrowing. Our problem is we borrow even when we're not in an emergency or a downturn. And then I think the recently more troubling area in all this is it leaves us vulnerable from a national security perspective. We borrow from abroad. We're dependent on overseas borrowing to help keep interest rates low. And economics and national security are becoming more intertwined. And this is why numerous national security experts have time and time again, when asked what the biggest threat to the country is, actually pointed to our domestic debt, our national debt, as the biggest national security threat that we face. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast today, because when you hear those concerns you just mentioned, and then you hear that China owns a significant portion of U.S. debt, uh, I believe just about $860 billion of U.S. Treasuries, about 2.6 of that, uh, 2.6% of the U.S. Treasury. Is that a concern? That's a concern. It's a it's a really big concern. Uh, and we don't know how that might play out. So for many years, we've been dependent on foreign borrowing to help us. So for instance, in Japan, they they borrow a lot, but it's almost all borrowed domestically. That means they're not worried about whether other countries are willing to lend to them. And it also means that when they pay those interest payments, they stay within their economy. In our case, we've been dependent on foreigners to lend us money. And that means that when we pay interest payments, they leave our economy. That's part of why our standard of living is not growing as quickly as it otherwise would. But over the past years where it's become painfully apparent that we are deeply at odds with China to the point where it's a dangerous tension level, we have now come to understand that they're purchasing so much of our debt is just another spot of our vulnerability in terms of how we are competing with them and where the conflicts will arise. So for instance, while we've been having a trade war with them and for years we were fighting over say soybeans, when they own $800 billion, or even at the time they owned a trillion dollars of US treasuries, there are other tools than soybean tariffs to play around with. The Chinese could dump treasuries and it would harm their own economy, probably more than it would harm ours, but that still nonetheless might be a tool that they're willing to use. So we've opened up a number of vulnerabilities by becoming dependent on countries, particularly ones that we are not aligned with. Now, does this lead to potential consequences for China, though, where they've got a vested interest in this? And if we were to default on our debt or, or be in a situation like that, where this could lead to consequences for their country? It does indeed. And that was one of the reassuring things for quite some time, where if the U.S. economy falters and particularly the, the situation with our treasury market and our debt, that's very bad for the U.S., but it could be worse for China. And so we kind of reassured ourselves, don't worry, that means that we are aligned and we don't want to see that happen. But the difference is 
students of China understand that we are playing a different a game with a different window of time, meaning the U.S. is very short term oriented, very immediate oriented. China is playing the long game when it's come to competing against the U.S. and reemerging as a leader in, in the world. And it could be we don't know, but it could be that dumping treasuries is a tool they are willing to use. I think the broader point, if you step back, is we should not be willing to find out. There is no reason for us to borrow excessively. There is no reason for us to be borrowing in a way that leaves us vulnerable to adversaries. And we should get our fiscal house in order for many, many reasons, including our own domestic economy, the well-being of future generations, and also because it would help alleviate that risk, which we don't know whether it is something that a vulnerability that China would want to exacerbate, take advantage of or not. And we shouldn't wait to find out. Are we seeing China drastically cut back in U.S. treasuries? I, I believe we, we are seeing them kind of not be as invested in the U.S. Treasury debt as they used to be. Correct. China has been diminishing its withholdings of U.S. debt. It used to have over a trillion dollars in debt, and now it's below $900 billion. They are kind of systematically not repurchasing treasuries as old ones run off. And so we can see that they are limiting their holdings. That, in one hand, may make us less concerned that they own so much of our debt. On the other hand, it might make us aware that they have a tool that affects our economy. And as a time when our borrowing needs are going up and our interest rates are already high because of the actions the Fed has had to take to fight inflation, it may be exacerbated by China choosing not to repurchase the amount of treasuries it had before. And we've seen at times in the past when China even indicated it wasn't interested in buying U.S. debt, that can royal treasury markets. It's had a short-term effect, not a long-term effect, but a bigger move by them could have a longer-term effect. Where is that money going instead? China is now purchasing debt from other countries and more domestically. And it's a hard issue to track because the Chinese data is very opaque. For instance, we know how much holding there is directly from mainland China, but we don't know how much Chinese ownership of there is of our debt through other nations. So the data is really unclear. And that's actually one of the problems of debt data overall. It's very difficult, non-transparent to know who owns exactly how much. And there's always a lag in what we know. So we are never playing with uh, full transparency of what the debt landscape looks like. And in many ways, we're also not playing with full transparency about the the effectiveness of China's economy, because we've seen that they've yeah. missed their uh, growth projections, I believe, multiple times just this year. And, and does China's economic struggles kind of play into this as well? Exactly. So at the same time that we're having this situation, which is our economy is strong, inflation is high, we shouldn't be running large and growing deficits, but we are. And that makes us need to borrow more, both domestically and from abroad. At the same time that that's going on, you have China diminishing how much it's purchasing of U.S. treasuries and major struggles within their own economy. So we know that their economy is slowing. We know that they're having problems with real estate and other sectors. We know that there is uh, an interest in some of their strongest corporations for not being in China anymore, but we don't know the details. And that is because China is not open and transparent with its data in general. Um, and we are in this interesting situation where tensions, global tensions have moved from kind of boots on the ground towards economic competition. And now it's also moving towards disinformation and, and cyber competition. But people are still kind of grappling with, wait, is it better for us to have a strong China, which helps the global economy? China, for instance, basically saved all of us during the downturn of 2008, 2009 because of their own stimulative measures. 
Or is it better for us not to have a strong China because we're competing with them? There's no simple answer on that, but we do know that China is struggling and that has deep ramifications for the global economy, not just their own economy domestically. Right. I think there's also this aspect, and I think this gets brought up in a lot of theories, but of course, we've never seen it happen, and we're not quite sure if it could happen. And I'll probably pose this question to you, you know, what could happen if the Chinese government decided to suddenly uh, call in all of the federal government's obligations? I mean, could they even do that? If they decided to sell U.S. treasuries? Yes, correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, China could choose to dump treasuries and it would not be good for their economy because it would diminish the value of their own portfolio, but it would not be good for our economy. It could really shake things up. And for instance, a well-timed dumping of treasuries when the U.S. is struggling with something else, whether it's inflation or growing interest rates or trying to have a soft landing, which it looks like we may right now in terms of controlling inflation and avoiding recession, but anything like China dumping treasuries, while it would harm them, would harm us tremendously. And so they do have a lot of power to kind of come in and change the dynamics that we're dealing with in our own economy due to the amount of treasuries they have. And they have choices about whether they want to sell them. There is always the risk that if you have your debt sold all at once, it could have deep effects on the domestic economy. And we are certainly in a situation where that could happen to us. The debt is going to other places now, too. I believe, you know, it's kind of not reported how much Japan actually owns. And they believe I believe they own more of the U.S. Treasury than than China does own. And then you also have the U.K. with a significant amount of money, six hundred and sixty eight point three billion. Belgium also has a significant number. So do these other countries have a factor and are they less concerning than China when it comes to how much they own from us? Yeah, I mean, other countries owning part of your debt has generally not been seen as a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's part of diversifying. It's just like you wouldn't want to have all domestic stocks. You would want to have some amount of international stocks as well. It's a great way for countries to diversify, for central banks to diversify. The complement and all of this. And it's it's something that's been going on forever, right? Yeah. I mean, in fact, expanding and growing as we opened up our markets and people invested beyond just their own countries. This is a positive thing. The big shift here is the realization that we are not nearly as aligned with China as we had thought we were a decade ago. And it's been a real struggle to come to terms with that, that while we were integrating ourselves with the Chinese economy in many ways and hoping that that would make us more politically aligned, that hasn't happened. And so when you have countries that you have very, very severe tensions with, and there's some some oil producing countries that own a lot of our debt as well. And that's another area where we have international tensions. Then you become more concerned about how integrated we are, how interdependent we all are. I think that's one of the big stories of the past decades. The the globe has become interdependent on each other. That's true with finance. That's true with supply chains. That's true with labor mobility and dealing with big issues, whether it's climate or pandemic. And in many cases, that's a positive thing. And in many cases where the tensions are uh, getting worse, that can be a very negative thing as well. And that's what we're trying to figure out with China. To what extent is this positive? Because we all want to be somewhat diversified through each other's economies. And to what extent is this negative? Because our tensions continue to mount. Just to, for some clarity, if when, when China China's influence there decreases, where, where is the money going instead? Uh, more of our, our debt is going to be purchased domestically is probably what's going to happen. There may be other countries that come in. The Fitch downgrade isn't having a profound effect, but 
when the U.S. has been downgraded by two of the rating agencies, and the reason, of course, is because we have too much de debt and because we're politically in a rocky situation where our governance structure isn't working and our polarization is harming our economy, that's causing a lot of other countries to choose to diversify. So even though the U.S. is the safe haven and that's always attracted countries to our debt, and we still are, other countries are finding they're wanting to diversify and particularly those that are not aligned with us geopolitically. So presumably, we're going to have to have more domestic purchases of our debt. The other risk is that this affects monetary policy and what the Fed has to do to keep the economy stable and dealing with both its employment goals and its inflation goals. And there is the concern, certainly concern I have, is that our mismanaged fiscal policy is adding pressure to our monetary policy, which already has enough challenges to deal with without making our excessive borrowing make, make their job more difficult. And I think one thing that kind of stands out as we kind of get towards the end here, and this really stands out to me is you talked a lot about how this is a national security issue tied to a fiscal issue. And when we talk about some of the deficits we've been running in this country over the last couple of decades, a lot of that has to do with military spending. And we've got the NDAA uh, being negotiated by Congress right now, spending close to $900 billion as a top-line defense spending package. And, you know, defense spending is one of the reasons why we've run deficits for so long. And in many ways, in order to aid our national security, in many ways, we're now putting more money into China. Is, is that a, a theory that's accurate there? Well, I think I think it is. I mean, defense has always had a huge effect in whether we were able to uh, run surpluses. It was when we had the peace dividend that was part of what contributed to our being able to run budget surpluses in the past, along with some responsible measures that our politicians took by raising taxes and cutting spending. That That's what they did that helped us get surpluses. We're going to need to do that again. But I think without question, defense spending as a share of the economy is headed up not down. And part of the reason is that a lot of our defense spending is outdated on the wrong things. And we're going to have to think about more areas of cybersecurity and things which are very difficult. We don't even know how to spend the money perfectly to defend against the new threats. We're also looking at other things like more industrial policy, which are likely to slow economic growth for the sake of economic security. So we are facing some real headwinds that are going to make the situation overall more difficult. And frankly, this is one of those moments where those people uh, who have been saying, hey, we're borrowing too much. This is leaving us in a dangerous situation. Part of why you don't want to borrow when things are good is because you need to have that fiscal flexibility when things are bad. Well, we didn't heed that. And now we have way too much debt as a share of our economy. Very difficult time bringing that back down. And that's going to make keeping our economy strong and uh, and increasing our national security in a time of ongoing threats much more challenging than it should have been and than it had to be. And, you know, it's it's a real shame that the U.S. decided to borrow excessively when we didn't need to because it's going to harm us in the coming years. Maya McGinnis from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. This is a, a pretty confusing topic, but it's a very, very important one. And I thank you for breaking it down for us and making this very easy to understand. Thanks so much for having me. That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, half of Congress is back in session. Will lawmakers make progress on avoiding a government shutdown? And what's next in the legal battle for former President Donald Trump? We'll have it all for you here. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.